This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to African News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for Pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Coming up on African News Tonight... Even if these peace talks go incredibly well, we see a cessation of hostilities, resumption of aid and the lifting of a blockade on Tigray and then political negotiations. There is no guarantee at all that Eritrea will welcome that. That's crisis group analyst William Davison on the possibility that Eritrea could play a role in Ethiopia-Tigray peace talks. Details coming up. Also, we get an update on the fight against Ebola in Uganda. Central African leaders name DRC's president as mediators for the crisis in Chad. And a Zimbabwe museum is displaying the remains of what scientists say is the oldest known dinosaur discovered in Africa. We have these stories and more on African News Tonight. We start with our top story. Talks aimed at ending war in Ethiopia's Tigray region started yesterday in South Africa's capital, Pretoria, and are expected to end Sunday. But analysts say peace still seems a long way off. Conflict between the Tigray People's Liberation Front, the TPLF, and an alliance of Ethiopian government and Eritrean troops has left thousands dead and millions displaced. Darren Taylor reports. Crisis group analyst William Davison says Eritrea could be a significant spoiler of the negotiations brokered by the African Union over the next few days, even though it isn't at the talks. The ill feeling, which some observers call hatred between Tigrayans and Eritreans, stretches back decades. In the 1990s, Eritrea and Ethiopia, then led by the TPLF, fought a bitter and bloody war. Davison says Eritrea's involvement in the Tigray conflict makes peace much harder to achieve. Even if these peace talks go incredibly well, we see a cessation of hostilities, resumption of aid and the lifting of a blockade on Tigray and then political negotiations. There is no guarantee at all that Eritrea will welcome that. There's been no signs that Eritrea wants to see a negotiated settlement. He says Eritrea is deadly serious about the conflict. President Azayas Afewerki has sent thousands of troops and tons of arms and ammunition into the region. Generally, the understanding is that the Eritrean objective is the complete eradication of Tigray's ruling party, the TPLF, and everything it stands for in terms of Tigray's autonomy and strength, because they see a powerful Tigray as a regional rival. Davison says at the moment, the TPLF and Eritrea are locked in a zero-sum fight to the last bullet. Tigray itself, and this is one of the things that has developed during the war, making the situation that much more difficult, Tigray has now developed a very large fighting force of its own, possibly numbering in hundreds of thousands of troops. And because of the animosity between the Eritrean and Tigray leadership and their history, the Eritrean government now sees that Tigray force as something of an existential threat as well. He says the AU, European Union and United States have struggled so far to influence what's happening in Tigray. But he adds they've done well to make the talks happen and they should continue diplomatic pressure for a truce. But if the parties continue to try and find a military solution to this conflict, then really we should see 
firmer action from the African Union, but also from the US and other actors in terms of making it absolutely clear to the federal and Eritrean governments, also the Tigray leadership, um, that they will face consequences if they do not try and find um, a negotiated settlement to this war. Horn of Africa director at Human Rights Watch, Letitia Bader, says Tigrayans continue to suffer even while the talks unfold in Pretoria. The Ethiopian federal government offensive with Eritrean government forces has involved heavy shelling, including the use of drones in urban areas, which have resulted in civilian casualties. We know that countless civilians have once again been displaced. Now, there is currently absolutely no humanitarian access into Tigray. We also know that Tigrayan forces moved into the Amhara region to certain towns there, and we were receiving reports of looting and extrajudicial executions by Tigrayan forces against the Amhara civilian population there. So this is really a conflict. Bada says she'll consider the talks fruitful if the opponents commit to not directly targeting civilians. She also wants Addis's representatives to agree to restore basic services, including internet and cell phone networks in Tigray, and for all sides to pledge to immediately allow humanitarian aid into the region. For VOA News, I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. The Embassy of the United Arab Emirates is denying reports that the UAE has banned visa applications from 20 African nations. A UAE spokesperson today told VOA reporter Ignatius Anor nothing has changed regarding the obtaining visa for African countries. There had been news reports in several African countries that the United Arab Emirates had banned visa applications from 20 countries. Earlier today on VOA's Daybreak Africa program, Uganda's Minister of State for Foreign Affairs, Henry Okele Oriem, told reporter Douglas Mpuga if there had been a ban, it is because of the number of citizens of those 20 countries who overstayed their tourist visits and worked in the UAE illegally. Oriem said his government intended to reach out to the UAE to discuss the issue. Uh, you know, the information we're getting is... Uganda has reported a surge in spread of the Sudan Ebola strain with confirmed cases rising over the past few days to 90, including nine in the capital, Kampala. The cases are the first from Uganda's most populated city, home to 1.7 million people. Medical Teams International, the global humanitarian and health organization, is responding to help prevent the virus from spreading. VOA's Douglas Mpuga reached Michael Chapman, Senior Director of Global Programs at Medical Teams International, for an update on the situation. Uh, you know, the information we're getting is consistent with what we're hearing from WHO. Of course, there's an increased number of cases, uh, some concerning cases in Kampala level. Um, and, and the districts out along the border, DRC, Kassanda district, where some new cases have been. So those two areas are, are concerns. In the region where we're working in, in the central region where the Ebola outbreak started, uh, we feel things are continuing to be contained quite well. Uh, we're pleased there's no, no cases in the refugee population, which, which is our biggest concern. Um, and so continue to fight at the community level and within our facilities to to continue to support the response. From the reports we're getting, uh, it seems uh, the 
disease is spreading, what is not being done right by the people or the authorities, you think? Well, I think everyone is doing the right things. Contact tracing, which is really critical, has a really high rate. So people are, are following up really well uh, with the cases that they're seeing, especially in Kampala. Um, you know, I think the concern is just that there's a potential you know, spread in, in places like schools, other places, um, which is, of course, always a concern. I think the authorities have been do- doing an excellent job uh, following all the right protocols, especially following up with, with all the cases in their contacts and trying to contain it. The, the government has uh, locked down the two districts of Mwenda and Kasanda. There are rumors that mm-hmm. there may be a lockdown in Kampala itself, the capital city. Would that be a good idea? Mm-hmm. You know, I think um, the government needs to consider any ways they can they keep, uh, you know, keep stopping the spread. Uh, that's something that's needed, of course, and supported by, by the Ministry of Health. Uh, you know, we would be supportive of that. Anything that needs to be done to to contain the the further spread. Um, you know, right now, uh, the cases that they're seeing, I think, are are um, being con- contained and managed really well. But that's, of course, at the discretion of the government to decide if they need to do further measures to to further reduce the the spread. And so far as we know, the, the therapeutics and vaccine are, are a problem at the moment. So the only, I think, uh, mm-hmm. what are you concentrating on? Are you concentrating on containment and uh, tracing? Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, just focusing on identifying cases, you know, increasing education, and especially the population they have a lot of misinformation. So working really hard on communication to prevent it. And then containment and follow-up um, of the disease is, is so critical. Yeah, like you said, because uh, the vaccination, I understand, of course, there's a trial vaccination for, for this strain, but because there's no approved vaccination, that's we have, we have to continue to fight it in the in the effective ways we can, which is containment and prevention. Michael Chapman, Senior Director of Global Programs at Medical Teams International, spoke with VOA's Douglas Mpuga from Rome, where he is attending the World Health Summit. You're listening to African News Tonight on The Voice of America. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Please note, we have moved our programs from voanews.com to voaafrica.com. There, you'll find all your favorite VOA radio and TV programs and a whole lot more. Find us on voaafrica.com. An emergency meeting of Central African leaders in Kinshasa has named DRC's president as a mediator for the crisis in Chad. The summit of the Economic Community of Central African States named Felix Tshisekedi to help calm tensions in Chad, where security forces killed about 50 people last week in protests against the military government. According to the French news agency AFP, Tshisekedi said yesterday that the violence was a dramatic mistake that shattered a national consensus on a move to civilian rule. Five-star general Mohamed Idris Debi took power in April 2021 following the death of his father, vowing that a transition to elections would take place within 18 months. That deadline expired last Thursday, the day of the protests. Debi now says elections will take place in two years. 
More frequent and severe droughts in Africa are hampering food production, especially in arid parts of the continent where farmers struggle to make a living. A water retention system developed in the United States is helping African farmers fight the trend to improve crops yield in drought-affected areas. Juma Majanga reports from Kibwezi, Kenya. Under the scorching sun in the Ulilinzi village of southeastern Kenya, farmers are engaging in unique land preparations. They are installing in the ground specially designed polyethylene membranes that look like clear covers to prevent the loss of moisture and nutrients from the soil. Exacerbated by drought from climate change, the sandy soils in this area, like in most arid and semi-arid areas, has made it nearly impossible to produce abundant crops. However, this new water retention technology developed in the U.S. is giving farmers here new hope. Alvin Smarker is a professor of soil biophysics at the Michigan State University who developed the technology. We had a lot of government funding into the millions and millions of dollars to put all of this whole system together and then test it in Texas, Arizona, California, and Michigan. And these were all four universities that worked with us. So this is not something we put in a little container in the backyard, my backyard, and now we're saying it's the best in the world. It's been tested. Shame Kuya, a researcher at the Jomo Kenyatta University of Agriculture and Technology, is one of the scientists leading the trials of the technology in Kenya. We have tested the technology with cowpea. We have also tested the technology with maize. And we realized that farms where we had installed these membranes were more productive. The technology has so far been tested in Zimbabwe and Kenya and is getting good reviews. Florence Moticia, a farmer in Ulilinzi village, has deployed the technology in her farm. She says when the technology came, she was trained on how to make her sandy soil farm fertile. I saw the benefits and deployed it in my farm. And I can say that this technology is working very well because now I get good harvest, she adds. A few meters away, Anne Mutunga is harvesting kales at her farm. This technology is very good, she pauses before she continues. I can say it is good because when it was used in my farm for trials, I harvested a lot of maize. Mutunga explains. Even now, we are very happy because, as you can see, we have vegetables which you can't find anywhere else around here, she says, beaming with a smile. The International Center for Tropical Agriculture is among the organizations spearheading trials of the subsurface water retention technology in the sub-Saharan region and says it can bring about a green revolution in the long run, as Sylvia Nyawira a researcher at the center explains. In addition to the technologies, farmers, if they continue uh, applying, for instance, manure, uh, retaining their crop residues in the soil, reducing the tillage in the soils, then there is buildup of organic matter. So even in five years to come, the yields that we have been witnessing in the plots with, with, that have the technology 
are expected to be much higher. Apart from improving crop yields, experts say the technology can also help in climate change mitigation through carbon sequestration. Here again is Shem Kuya. As you increase productivity, the crops are able to take um, carbon from the atmosphere, fix it into their biomass, and when this material is incorporated into the soil, it increases soil organic matter, and by increasing the organic matter in the soil, you are able to fix carbon dioxide that was once in the atmosphere, you are able to lock it into the soil. A key drawback of this new water retention technology is the high cost and labor involved. It costs about 1250 to 2000 US dollars to buy the specialized membranes to cover one hectare of land. The challenge now is making this technology available for farmers in remote areas who need it the most. Juma Majanga for VOA News, Kibwezi, Kenya. Startups and small and medium-sized enterprises are changing the way Africa does business through innovation and technology. From agriculture, telecommunication, health, and so many sectors, young entrepreneurs are infusing vibrancy and energy into the African economy. Big business is watching and ready to support. Through the 2022 Africa Digital Innovation Competition, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and its prestigious partners are providing cash awards and mentorship support to three of Africa's top innovators chosen from 17,000 candidates from 50 countries in North, Central, East, West and Southern Africa. The Voice of America interviewed the top 10 candidates from where the finalists will be picked. Here is one of them. My name is Udubenga Bubale. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Grandmaster. I'm 32 years old. I'm from Nigeria. Uh, Grandmaster is based in Ibadan, Nigeria. I applied for the 2022 Africa Digital Innovation Competition because the coaching, the peer, and the prize money will help us to support more SMEs, create more jobs uh, for more writers, and essentially scale our services across um, Africa uh, so that we can help more SMEs to attract the funding they need to grow. I mean, it means a lot to me to be one of the top 10 finalists. I feel I'm energized and inspired uh, to essentially help more businesses across Africa attract the funding they need to grow and scale and make a difference. Funding gap in Africa alone is, in Sub-Saharan Africa is about $330 billion. And when SMEs are unable to attract funding, what happens? Unemployment rises because people lose their jobs. SMEs are unable to grow the economy wasn't. And this is the problem that we're trying to solve at Grandmaster. We're trying to connect SMEs to funding. We provide them grant opportunities and then connect them with vetted grant writers to help them put together coherent, cohesive grant proposals that can help them attract the funding they need to grow and scale. So that's what we do at Grandmaster. We're like the Uber for grants. Over the next three years, we intend to help 1,000 SMEs um, attract grant funding to the tune of $10 million, uh, enabling them to create uh, not less than 11,000 jobs. And of course, this would enable them to lift at least 250,000 Africans out of poverty. Our work at Grandmaster empowers businesses to hire people. So therefore, we create jobs. Uh, we, we lift the economy, we empower the economy by virtue of our work. So it's a ripple effect. Winning the competition would be a huge boost for our work for our mission and our vision to become the fundraising backbone for impact-driven organizations. Because when we are able to empower SMEs, that means more jobs. 
That means the sick get the care that they need. That means the unemployed are able to get jobs. That means more vibrant businesses are able to go to the next level. That was Olugbena Ogunbwede from Nigeria. The competition for African startups is organized by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the U.S. Africa Business Center. Cameroon's military says several soldiers have been arrested for torturing a suspected separatist general and fighters. Moki Edwin Kenzeka reports from Yaoundé. Army captain and military spokesman Cyril Saesh Atonfa Gemo said in a statement that the government troops in question committed gross human rights violations and crimes which give Cameroon's military a bad image. The military says during an operation to free civilians abducted by fighters, troops killed at least a dozen rebels and arrested and tortured several others. The statement says government troops accused the fighters they arrested of helping no pity a notorious self-proclaimed separatist general to escape. The statement says government troops took and shared videos of the torture scene among themselves. Unfortunately for the troops, the videos leaked and were shared on social media platforms, including WhatsApp and Facebook, leading to an outcry and widespread condemnation, according to the statement. Von Isidor, a 25-year-old farmer in Jotin, says the military also attacked and killed innocent civilians during the operation which took place last week. They can't enter. They shoot them. Fon says he saw seven government troops attack his residence in Jotin. He says he escaped to a nearby bush through the back door as the troops were struggling to destroy the front door. Fon says he returned to the house after three hours when the troops had left and saw that his mother had been shot two times in the head. Fon spoke via the messaging app WhatsApp. He said he saw four injured people being taken by their relatives to a hospital in the nearby town of Kumbu. The military denies claims that the troops killed or wounded innocent civilians in the Jotin clash. Colonel Boom Bisoy is one of Cameroon's military commanders fighting separatists in the northwest region. Boom says a large majority of Cameroon's government troops protect civilians and their property. He says the few who abuse the rights of citizens will be severely punished, as spelled out in Cameroon's military code of conduct. Boom says civilians should feel secure when they see government troops and report wayward behavior to the military hierarchy. The government has not said how many of the troops were taken into custody or when they will face justice. In July, and for the first time, Defense Minister Joseph Betty Asomo acknowledged grave rights abuses by the military against civilians in the fight against Anglophone rebels and said he had ordered such violations to stop. Rights groups, including the Center for Human Rights and Democracy in Africa, have accused government troops of committing human rights abuses in the separatist crisis. They say the government tortures and kills people suspected of collaborating with rebels. Human Rights Watch has accused both the military and rebels of abuses, including rape, 
torture and killings. The separatists blame the military and armed groups in the western regions. The UN says the separatist crisis that began in Cameroon's English-speaking regions in 2017 has killed more than 3,300 people and displaced 750,000, with many fleeing to neighboring Nigeria. Cameroon's Anglophone rebels want to create a breakaway state they call Ambazonia, separate from the nation's French-speaking majority. Moki Edwin Kinzaka for VOA News, Yaoundé, Cameroon. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Baro, and our engineer, Bill Androdi, thanks for choosing the Voice of America.